Good job. Yeah, thank you. Well, good morning, church family. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, glad you're here. I'm Randy. I'm privileged to be the lead minister here at the church. And uh, happy Father's Day, dads and granddads. Huh? Amen? Amen. All right. Yeah. And let's just cut to the picture that I want everyone to make sure they see here. There you, you knew what it was, right? There it was. There you go. I am a rich man. I want you to know that. And uh, so uh, to uh, your right is uh, my older son, Benjamin. And to uh, screen left there is our now four-month-old grandson, uh, Elias. Elias Boltinghouse. And so... um, uh, what's, who is not in the picture is our uh, soon-to-be three-year-old granddaughter, Audrey. So I just love that picture. Everybody's, everybody's smiling. So anyway. Um, so there's a quote from a book called Being Dad, Father as a Picture of God's Grace. The author, uh, uh, Scott Keith has this quote, children are created to look to their dads as a picture of God. Children are created to look to their dads as a picture of God. I wonder what you think about that quote. That quote inspires me. It motivates me. Uh, That quote terrifies me, doesn't it? Because what the author is saying, I believe this, that so I help by my life and by my character and by my actions shape the picture of our Heavenly Father to my boys and now my grandchildren. Uh, For good or bad, a godly, strong, gracious earthly father serves as evidence for a godly, strong, gracious, heavenly father. Biblical masculinity, biblical fatherhood, biblical manhood can't just be described in a list of traits. Biblical fatherhood is rather a picture, you know, embodied by a flesh and blood example that you can see, you can speak with, be in community with. It's a picture. And as you know, the world has many pictures. The picture of biblical fatherhood has competitors. And that takes me to our passage of Scripture this morning in the New Testament book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to meet me in Acts chapter 24. And in your church Bibles, in the pouch in front of you, you'll find Acts chapter 24 on pages 933 and 934. We've been in this book as Luke is giving us the history of Christianity around the first 30-ish years, from about A.D. 30, A.D. 60, A.D. 63. 
Acts 1.8 says, you will be my witnesses, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will receive power to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. And we're getting to that ends of the world section in Acts 24. And the Apostle Paul is one picture of biblical masculinity, biblical fatherhood. And he has a competitor, Claudius Antonius Felix. A man of this world. So you've got the city of God and the picture of fatherhood and manhood and masculinity, all that is within that city versus the city of man. Fatherhood from above, fatherhood from below. And you know where I'm going with this message. Imitate Paul, avoid Felix. Well, you would expect me to say that. I'm a pastor. This is a church. You get it. But here's what I want to argue in this passage of Scripture. I think Felix, there's a part of him that wants to be like Paul. I think once Felix hears the gospel and he sees a man of God embodied, embodying the spirit of Christ and the character of Paul and the poise of Paul, a man who is in chains and yet at the same time free, there's a part of Felix that, that part of his soul's so I want something that that Paul has. But he keeps resisting, and as a result, he is a miserable, pitiful man, portraying a pitiful, temporary picture. Two pictures, two versions of masculinity, two images of fatherhood. Paul, Felix, choose. That's where we're going here. Well, I want to read verses 22 to 27. We're going to be interrupting some action that's already taking place, but you'll figure out what's happening here shortly. Acts 24, 22, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. That phrase, the way, refers to Christianity. Interesting, he had an accurate knowledge of Christianity. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody. That's Paul now. But have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is God's word. Now I wonder if first century marriages had something in common with 21st century American marriages in that at the end of the day, the spouses come together, there's dinner time, and, you know, the question gets put on the table, so how was your day? 
What did you do today? Drusilla poses this question to Claudius Antonius Felix, who was the governor of the province of Judea, who held the same office as Pontius Pilate did. Now it's decades later. Oh, you wouldn't believe my day today, dear. My goodness, it was just unbearable. I had to preside over a trial today. Back then, governors often fulfilled judicial responsibilities too. Uh, you might be interested in this, uh, dear Drusilla. Uh, this uh, itinerant Hebrew rabbi, you being Jewish and all, you would appreciate this. This, this. this Saul of Tarsus was brought before me. This Hebrew rabbi who is acquainted with this group called The Way, and he's been establishing these spiritual communities all across Asia Minor, and he's gone up to Philippi, and then he's gone to Thessalonica, and then Corinth, he's been to Athens, he's been to Ephesus, and he came to Jerusalem, and a riot all of a sudden started, and so he was arrested, and my tribune, Lysias, was about ready to flog him when he questioned Lysias if it was even legal uh, to flog a Roman citizen without a proper trial, and Lysias goes, well, I purchased my citizenship. <laughs> this Saul of Tarsus said, well, I was born a citizen, fella. And so thou started this process, and, and, uh, and then he was about to be assassinated. So I took my 400 guards, or Lysias did, and brought him up to Caesarea. 400 for one person? Well, he's a citizen, you know. And 40 knucklehead zealots swore that they would never have one more crumb of bread to eat until they had assassinated this Saul of Tarsus. And I got wind of that, or Lysias did, and protected this Saul, brought him up to me, and, and there was this trial today. His enemies hired this expensive attorney, far too expensive for what services he rendered. You know the guy's name, uh, Tertullus. And, and, and what did he say? He said, well, he stood up and he gave a long-winded beginning about how wonderful I was to serve over the province, how much better we had become because of me, and yeah, 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 yeah. More matter, less art. That's what I was thinking. And then he proceeds to call this Saul a pest. He says he's a pest. That's what he is. Really? Yes, yes. He caused a riot in Jerusalem. Uh, he's a ringleader of the Nazarenes. And he profaned the temple. He's a pest. Punish him. That's all you got, buddy? That's all he had. Expensive lawyer for that. Well, what did this Paul guy say? Oh, my goodness, he was brilliant. After thanking me that I was experienced, he proceeded to refute every one of those hearsay arguments. He said, first of all, I've only been in Jerusalem 12 days. That's hardly enough time to cause a riot. Secondly, I'm not a ringleader of a Nazarene sect. I am, in fact, a Hebrew follower of Yahweh, the same God my accusers worship. I am an adherent to the God of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And furthermore, I've not come to profane the temple. I came to bring offerings to the temple and to help uh, my, my, uh, uh, my fellow uh, countrymen and women who are experiencing this famine. 
And by the way, this Paul says, where are my accusers from Asia Minor? I mean, why aren't they here to accuse me? Silence on the other side. It was brilliant. Brilliant. He's clearly innocent. Clearly. And then he says this. He says, most excellent Felix, I can assure you of this one thing. I stand before you here now on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. And right then and there, I thought, okay, this is not for the Roman courts. Oh, Drusilla said. So then what are you going to do? Well, clearly he's innocent. Yes, yes. What are you going to do? Well, I think I'll call Lysias the tribune up from Jerusalem and just double check everything. But he's, he's clearly innocent. I think I might keep him, though, you know. Really? Why? Well, dear, you've always wanted to go to Pompeii, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, I would love to go to beautiful, beautiful uh, area. It's beautiful in the fall. It's a seaside town. It's just absolutely exquisite and lovely. Well, Felix says, let me see what I can't do. Let me see if I can't get this Saul of Tarsus to, oh, how shall we say, lubricate the slow, squeaky wheels of Roman justice with a monetary gift to Caesar's representative in order to expedite his trial. Yes, let's see what we can't do with that. Oh, that would be lovely if you could. And then she says this, where is he right now? Where is he right now? Well, he's, you know, two floors down. That's where he, oh, I'd love, would you like to meet him? I would love to see him. And so he arranges it. And, and that's why verse 24 says, and some days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul. And there they were, quite possibly in his private quarters. No media, no reporters, just Paul and this Claudius Antonius Felix and his wife, Drusilla. You could not put two more different types of people in the same room. You couldn't. You couldn't. I mean, I mean Felix. He was born a slave. Uh, his freedom was purchased, and he navigated the network of uh, Roman class system. His brother was practically best friends with Claudius the emperor, which doesn't hurt. And that's how he finally wound his way into this governorship in the province of Judea. And he was absolutely ruthless toward any type of resistance. He quickly crucified terrorists who would exalt themselves against the Roman crown, and yet at the same time, he conspired with those very terrorists to have a high priest assassinated that he didn't happen to like. Woo! He was a dirty guy. Furthermore, he raided another man's marriage to get Drusilla. Drusilla's his third wife by the time we get to Acts chapter 24. And the first century historian Josephus tells us that Drusilla was the fairest of them all. She's hardly 20 years of age 
in Acts chapter 24. I mean, she practically got her driver's license when he stole her from another marriage. She's on her second husband. He's on his third wife. I mean, you talk about people of the world. What you're looking at is a first century version of Frank and Claire Underwood. That's who you're looking at right there. And then you have the apostle Paul, who by the time he's standing before Frank and Claire, He's been across the Roman Empire. The last 15 years, he's been persecuted. He's been left for dead. Uh, he's been the, uh, nearly assassinated. Uh, he's been hungry. He's been thirsty. He's had to provide his own living. He's gone through Asia Minor several times, the rim of the Aegean Sea, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, uh, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and he's been declaring the gospel. His own converts in Corinth were not very impressed. 2 Corinthians 10.10 10 says, his appearance is weak and his speech is of no account. Those are his very converts. Please don't ever say that about me. <laughs> not to my face at least. But there he is, Paul and Felix. Now, here's the question. If you had one sermon that you would preach to the leader of your country and his wife, just the three of you, no reporters, no media, one sermon, what would that be? What would you say? Would you say something to flatter Felix, so that he might give you an early release? Because I'm practically speaking, Felix could let him go that night. And then he could go and he could plant more churches and he could uh, strengthen the other churches that he's established. I mean, practically speaking, and it wouldn't, you know, it's okay, give him a little bit of money, that's fine. I mean, nobody would really care. You, what would you do? Well, what we hear Paul say is the last thing someone would say if they wanted an early release. The Apostle Paul says in verse 24, it says that Luke says that Paul spoke to Felix and Drusilla, here's the phrase, about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul said what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, what Cornelius was told later on in Acts and what Paul said across Asia Minor and across uh, Greece, the same story. He's got one string on his guitar and he's going he's gonna to strum that. He's going to talk about faith in Christ Jesus. And what you understand, he's not talking about, okay, all you need to do is just quick say a fast sinner's prayer and check this box and, and you'll be on your way. No, 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 no. We're talking about the story of salvation God, people, Christ, respond. God, in the beginning, God created everything and created it good. And the pinnacle of his creation, our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, God endowed them with his image. We alone carry the image of God. We are to reflect his glory. We are to be his representative as we rule over that which belongs to him. We are to steward his creation. And in the beginning, it was good. Good with our relationship 
with earth, good with our relationships with one another, good with our relationship with God. But our spiritual ancestors did not want to steward. They usurped God's rule over their lives. And instead of wanting to follow God, they wanted to create their own law, their own goodness, their own righteousness. The sin of Adam and Eve was not jaywalking. The sin of Adam and Eve was mutiny against the beauty of God's majesty. God, people. And that's why this world has fallen apart. And then Paul spoke the two most powerful words of all the Bible. You know what they are. But God. But God. Ephesians 2, 4, when you were dead in your sins, but God, who is rich in mercy. Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, but God showed his love for us. But God is our salvation because it tells of God's love to send his son to live the life that we could not live and to die our death for us, as the prophet Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Church family, the gospel is not that we're 80% there and God sent Jesus to fill in the blanks, fill in the gaps, 20% more, yeah. No, no, no. The gospel is that we were dead and I should have died, but Jesus died for me. He took my place. He substituted himself for me. His wounds for my transgressions. His chastisement for my iniquities. His sorrow for my sin. His punishment leads to my peace. His wounds bring my healing. His grief is the cause of my joy. That's the gospel news. And, and that's the essence of faith in Christ. And we're not talking about faith in faith. We're not talking about I'm saved by the strength of my faith. No, I'm not saved by the strength of my faith because sometimes I feel like my faith is weak. But that's not, that's not what brings my salvation. My salvation is the object of my faith. The object of my faith is a dead, buried, resurrected, ascended king who has sent his spirit into my life. And that spirit makes claims on me. And that's then why the Apostle Paul goes to verse 25 when he reasons with Felix and Drusilla about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And when he talks about righteousness, he's talking about the righteousness that God gives us through his son, Jesus Christ, to credit us. Uh, we, we get the holiness of Christ. And it's not just a holiness that allows us to stand before the Heavenly Father, but it's a functional, practical holiness 
2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So it's not just that I am declared righteous by a holy God, but he gives me that righteousness that I can display that righteousness before the world. And Felix, you need that because you take bribes. And then he talks about self-control. Oh, how Felix needed that. To the man who's on his third wife. He's getting personal now. Christianity gets personal. And then he talks about the coming judgment. Oh, Felix, I realize, I know who you are and I know who I am. And I know, and I know what power you have over me. But remember, remember what Paul's king said to Felix's predecessor decades before, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Power you have is delegated power. Your verdict can be overturned, but I serve one whose verdict is final and complete. Coming judgment. And right then and there, righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. What's verse 25 say? Felix got uncomfortable. Felix was alarmed. Some of your versions say that he feared. And what did he say? Okay, that's enough. Go away for the present. Go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. See, he didn't want to hear it, did he? He didn't want to hear it. He, he, he could not fathom being a follower of the way. He couldn't fathom having a community of believers. I mean, his life had always been to try to get to the top of the pyramid so that everybody else is looking up and he's looking down. He couldn't fathom being in a community, a family, a family of brothers and sisters in Christ from different economic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, uh, uh, different family backgrounds, different nations, different ethnicities. He couldn't fathom any of that whatsoever. And he couldn't fathom brothers and sisters in Christ who would actually help him be holy and sharpen him toward righteousness and self-control and to understand the glory of judgment. Do you know the glory of judgment? Do you know the dignity of judgment? The dignity of judgment is that God respects you so much that he wants to evaluate your life how many of you have ever had teachers or professors and you just can't get a grade from them? You email them, you call them, you write them. All you want to know is what your grade is and you just can't seem to pull that out of that professor. You have a holy God who respects you enough to make an evaluation on your life. Felix can't fathom that. And as a result, all Felix has spent his lifetime pursuing are the verdicts of lower courts. And Paul says, Felix, God put in your heart this need to be justified. And until you're able to stand before him justified with the verdict of fully loved and fully accepted, you're never going to be truly free from all the lower courts that you're living for. Until the opinion of the one who matters most actually matters most to you, you're never going to be free from your unrelenting glory hunger. And that's what Felix had.
Felix didn't want to hear that. And yet, verse 26 says, at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. At the same time, he was hoping Paul would give him some money. And so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So, I mean, Paul's not going to give him any money. You're not getting a dime. You're not getting a drachma. You're, not, you're getting nothing. Zero. Nada. Yet. None. No money. I mean, how, how many times did that have to happen before Felix would just kind of just say, you know, all right, never mind. But no, Felix keeps coming back. And they keep conversing about what? Well, how many strings did I say Paul had on his guitar? One. So every time, every time he meets with Paul, Paul, Paul gives him faith in Jesus Christ, and that makes claims on my life, and you let his righteousness flow through you, self-control flow for you. He evaluates your life. He loves, he cares about your life. He's going to judge you, man. Hey, every time, over and over and over again. And Felix, see, he's not getting any money, and at the same time, he's a conflicted man. He, he knows accurately, he knows about Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus, though. And I wonder if that's true. I, frankly, I just wonder if that's true here. You know, how many of us can say, yeah, I get the basics about Christianity. I get the basics about life and Jesus. I get it. Yeah, you say this several times, Pastor. You know, God, people, Christ, respond. I, you get, I get it. Yeah, the story of salvation is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I get that. I get that. I'm glad you get that. But it's that in your heart. Is Jesus the king of your heart? And do you understand that he has given his Holy Spirit so that this family, so that you have something to share with this family as well as this family sharing with you? It's not enough to know about. You must know. And by faith, we know. And yet for two years, this went on. And Felix wouldn't make a decision. I mean, how long does it take for the tribune to walk from Jerusalem to Caesarea? Couple days, maybe. Two years. Two years. He keeps putting it off, putting it off. And, and as a result, Felix squanders the most precious possession that a person has, time. Time. He was going to be all that a mortal should be tomorrow. No one would be better than he tomorrow. Each morning he stacked up the letters he'd write tomorrow. Too busy to see his good friend indeed, but he promised to do it tomorrow. The greatest of workers this man would have been tomorrow. The world would have known him had he ever seen tomorrow. But the fact is he died and he faded from view. And all that was left when his living was through was a mountain of things he intended to do tomorrow. Kind of makes you wonder who the real prisoner was. Felix the judge was judged. By the gospel. Hmm. And he just kind of floats off the pages of scripture. We don't know what happened to him. Oh man, then there's Paul. <laughs> then there's Paul, the servant of Christ. He, he chained to Jesus, but he speaks so freely. And by the way, that takes me to our big idea. Here it is. 
I mean, we've been alluding to it. But here it is. The freest in life are not those unchained, but those who are chained to Christ. The freest, the freest fathers, the freest husbands, the freest men, the freest families, the freest mothers, the freest women, the freest, the freest in life aren't those unchained, but those who are chained to Christ. Paul speaks like a free man because he's chained to the one true high king, and he can look and he can reason. He can reason with Felix and Drusilla and tell them the truth, speak the truth in love because he belongs to a higher emperor. And Felix had never seen that before. And, and I think one of the reasons why Paul could just speak without fear and without pause was something Jesus himself had told Paul in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Just flip back one uh, page, Acts 23, verse 11. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Fact, Jesus was crucified. That's historical fact. Fact, Jesus died. Fact, Jesus was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Fact, witnesses saw where the body of Jesus was placed. That's a historical fact. It's irrefutable. Fact, on the third day, the tomb was empty. Fact, witnesses testify to seeing and having experienced not a vision or a hallucination or a dream, but Jesus risen and alive and speaking. Fact. In fact, their lives were changed. And Paul is among those witnesses. My goodness. The facts that were spoken in Jerusalem, Jesus said, you will testify about me also in Rome. So whatever happens to Paul in Caesarea, doesn't matter. Assassination attempt, stoning and left for dead, it doesn't matter. You can kill Paul, and they can transport his corpse to Rome. God will raise him back to life, if need be, so that he can preach the gospel underneath the nose of Caesar. It's going to happen, Jesus promised it. And that's why Paul could just speak so reasonably to Felix and Drusilla. And Felix had never seen anybody like that before. And as a result, he just, you know, he just was, he would not, it was held out to him, but he resisted it. Anybody, any, any descendants of Felix today? The freest in Christ aren't those unchained, but those who are chained to Christ. All right. So, Drusilla got to go to Pompeii. Yes, she did. She, she and their son. Don't know what happened to Felix. But Drusilla did. In the fall, and it was just as beautiful as she had hoped, harvest season, taking out the grapes, crushing them into wine. Man, seaside harbor, beautiful breeze, 70 degrees. You're not sweating like I am up here. Great day. My goodness, I'm sweating like a televangelist. 
Well, there they were. There they were in Pompeii. It was beautiful. True story. It was in the year A.D. 79. And they're having a great time. Until November the 23rd. Vesuvius erupted. And I mean in a flash, Vesuvius unleashed hell. And, and I mean in a moment, Pompeii was covered, smothered in a dome of molten ash. And, and that pile stayed that way for 1,500 years. And then they found it. And you can go there today to see some of the amazing artifacts that happened to be preserved. And then you can also see this. These are the molten casts of those who were so quickly overwhelmed. And somewhere, somewhere, Drusilla and her son are there. And, 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 and such is the picture of the city of man and fatherhood from below, masculinity from below, manhood from below. Such is the future of the puny procrastinating kingdom of one. Oh my goodness. May we, may we, may we flee and pursue the footsteps of Paul who pursued the footsteps of Jesus. This Paul who said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church family, two pictures, two versions of manhood, masculinity, fatherhood. Choose! Choose!